Well, good morning. God is so good to us to give us a time of worship and fellowship and prayer, even before we humbly approach his word. But as we approach God's word, I encourage you to open your hearts to be encouraged. Now, sometimes the word of God can rebuke, instruct, teach. But today, more than anything else, I think we're going going to be encouraged. For you see, God is bringing into existence a new creation. Now, we know in our own hearts that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Amen? That's true, but it's also true that God is about to create a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, and it'll happen after a thousand-year reign on this earth. But when we talk about the heavens and the earth, we're talking about the sky, the, the, the universe. The heavens and the earth is the universe as we know it, the atmosphere, the, the area of space in the universe. All of that, we know, will be done away with as it exists now after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And then, and then, God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And it is going to be very, very different. So when we think of heaven, we often think of the throne room of God. We talk about the angelic realm. But when we talk about the etern- eternity, the eternal state that, that we look for, that we long for in Christ, we're actually talking about more than just heaven as it exists now. We're talking about a new creation. And as we in Christ have become new, a new creation, we also will dwell in a new creation. And that is a very exciting and encouraging thought that we will be contemplating in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 21 in the book of Revelation. As we come to the end of our series of studies... In this book, it is so encouraging to read these words and over the next two weeks to contemplate the truth that God is creating a new creation for all of us who have become new creations in Christ. And so I pray as we begin our, our study and come to the end of this series of studies that you have been and will be encouraged in him. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you. I pray that you'd give me understanding and the words necessary to communicate the truth of what you are planning for all of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Lord God, we know that you are doing good things, and and there are hard things and difficult things and challenging things that will happen along the way, but the day will come where you will make it all just the way it should have been, or perhaps even was, in the Garden of Eden. Perfect a perfect environment, a paradise restored that was lost through Jesus Christ. But Lord, we don't want to wait several years or even a thousand years to experience the new creation. We want to experience in our hearts today the new creation that happens through the power of your spirit as we give our hearts to you. So I pray that every heart here would do that. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We pray that we would be that new creation in you. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I often think about when you're making a major purchase, how you generally have to put down a deposit, right? You you, you usually have to promise with a deposit to pay the rest 
of whatever the cost is. Maybe it's a mortgage or a car payment. Whatever it is you're purchasing. What we're told in the scriptures is that God has promised to completely redeem and purchase us. He's put down a down payment, an earnest or a promissory. That, that is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit in our lives is, is sort of, and, and in the scriptures, likened to a down payment on us. But we have not been fully purchased. If you haven't noticed, there's still sin in your life. There's still the, the sin nature. We're still living in a fallen world. We are looking forward to, in fact, longing for a day when we're living as perfect in a perfect world. That day is not today, and and, and sadly, that day is not tomorrow. And if the Lord were to return, it would be another thousand years before we would experience that level of eternity. However... The thousand-year reign of Christ will be a good time. It's described by Isaiah. It's, it, it's, it's a wonderful time to be alive on the earth as it exists today. It will change somewhat, but that day will come where the heavens and the earth will be done away with, and a new one will be created. And we start by looking at chapter 21, verse 1. And John says in the vision that he saw, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So his first description for us is that of a new creation, a new creation. God will create a new heaven. And when we say a heaven, we're talking in this context of an atmosphere. We're talking about the sky. We're talking about space. We're talking about the area around the earth, everything, the universe. It'll surround this new earth. And this will all take place after the final judgment of mankind, which we talked about last week. So when Christ brings his final judgment, the great white throne judgment, a new heaven and a new earth will be created. There's a word in Hebrew, it's bara, it means to create out of nothing. Now if I decide to create something, maybe I'm making something out of wood or I'm putting in a new patio uh, or even creating a work of art, there are materials that I will use to make that creation. That would be a different Hebrew word, ase. It means to create from something. When God creates, it's bara, it's out of nothing. The Latin ex nihilo, it's the idea of out of nothing. Only God can create out of nothing. Now, as I've said, Isaiah spoke of the millennium, but he also spoke of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And when he speaks about it in chapter 65 and chapter 66 of Isaiah, he kind of goes back and forth between the things that will take place during the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth. But understand, for a thousand years, this earth will get a whole lot better. But after that, it will be amazingly perfect because it will be new. And that's a word in Greek that means new in quality, not so much New as in recent or related to time, but quality, new. And I appreciate that. I'm a person that every decade maybe buys a new car. And I keep it for over 10 years generally. And the idea is you get a new car. There's something new in quality, not just that you have something different. I want you to think about new heaven and new earth, not so much in that it replaces the old, but it's new in quality. It is better. It is different. And we're looking forward to that. God will, though, destroy the first heaven and the first earth. That is, the earth that we're living on and the heavens that surround us now 
will, after the great white throne judgment, be destroyed. God will destroy the old and bring in the new. And that's a picture of us. We have this old nature that clings to us. It it never seems to let go. Have you noticed? Every once in a while you think it's gone and then you're in traffic and it comes back out. It's sitting in the seat next to you saying all manner of evil about your fellow drivers. And you think to yourself, well, who is that person? Well, no, it is not a case of or an onset of Tourette's. It is you. It is your flesh. It is your sin nature. It exists. It is there. You probably are aware of it. Some people think it doesn't exist anymore. It does. So even though we are new creations in Christ, our spirits have been born again. Our bodies and our minds and our soul have not been fully purchased. That is, we've been redeemed and saved, but we're looking for a day when that will be completely remade and we will be as he is, for when we see him, we shall be like him. Amen? So that hasn't happened yet, but the good news is it will happen, and when it does, we'll exist with Christ in a perfect universe. So when we say the new heaven and the new earth, we're saying a new universe. And this universe is vast and amazing, but the new one will be new in quality, so much better, and there will be no sin, therefore it will be a paradise. That is really heaven as we describe it to the Christian. It is the ultimate eternal state. It happens after the tribulation, after the millennium. It happens in eternity. And what happens after that? I can't tell you, but it's got to be good. Amen? We'll see a little of the description here and throughout the Bible, but that's good enough for me. It's beyond understanding, beyond description. But the current heaven and earth, the current universe, will be destroyed. We're told that it will ultimately pass away. Jesus said this. He said, my word will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So, heaven and earth will pass away. In fact, Peter tells us in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 102, tell us that it will be destroyed by fire and melt in the heat. What's fascinating about that is that If the universe, which is held together by God's power, were suddenly allowed, that's a good way of thinking of it, allowed to disintegrate, it would be sort of like a big bang in reverse. The the universe would explode. Everything in it would melt in a fervent heat. That's what would happen. And that's what we're told in in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're told that exact thing will happen. But that's not going to happen tomorrow. No matter what the climate change activists tell you, it's not going to happen next week or 12 years from now. It is going to happen at least a thousand years from now, but it's going to happen by God's design. It is going to happen because God says, let it be, and it will. And so that we're not necessarily looking forward to the destruction of this earth and this beautiful environment, but we're looking forward to what will replace it. Amen? God will create a new earth. And by the way, they're sorry about this, Jersey Shore folks, but there won't be any large bodies of salt water. I know what you're thinking, because I'm from Jersey. How are we going to live for eternity without the beach, right? I'm going to tell you, it's going to be so much better than that. I don't know what it'll be, but I'm sure you're not going to be sitting around for all eternity thinking, you know, it's pretty good, but... You know, Bradley Beach, Ocean Grove, I mean, 
so much better, you know. No, I don't think you're going to be thinking that way, as nice as tropical beaches are. I don't think you're going to be thinking that way. But what that tells us is that it's going to be a very different creation. Again, new in quality, not just the same thing redone. Um, The oceans give this earth life. And they continuously purify the atmosphere. A week or so ago, we had all those particulates in the air because of the fires up in Quebec. And it became difficult to breathe for some people. It even became difficult to go outside. It was really quite horrible. But why is it that over time those things sort of dissipate? Why is it that even pollution is absorbed and purified? Well, it's the oceans that are responsible for purifying our air. I'm fortunate enough in my house to have an air purifier uh, with a HEPA filter. So we were good inside. Then we held our breath, ran to the car, and we have a HEPA filter in the car. And then we held our breath, ran through the parking lot, came in here on a Wednesday night because after COVID, they installed HEPA filters here. So the next time we have any type of problem with the air, just understand the the air is really clean in the sanctuary, okay? But it tells me that, you know, air needs to be purified. That much is clear. God developed a filtration system that includes the atmosphere, but also the oceans, Well, that's because our world is a fallen world. In fact, before the flood, it was very different than it is today. I don't want to get into that today, but the oceans have a purpose. But the new earth will not require oceans or seas. It won't require a filtration of sorts of the air. It will be better, new in quality. And so that's one of the reasons I believe we're told that. Another reason that John may have mentioned this, although I'm not entirely sure, is that when John received this revelation, he was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he was probably a little tired of the sea at that point. But all of that said, you can understand it will be new in quality. It will be different. And then John saw something. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now that's very interesting. What is he talking about? Well, it's a little bit more than just this city coming down on a cloud, as it's sometimes pictured artistically, and sort of hovering over the earth. It's more than that. Remember that this is a new heaven and a new earth, so the laws of physics will probably be very different, I imagine. It's new in quality. So I don't think it's so important that we try to figure out what it is. What we will do over the next week is look at the description in the the next section of this chapter and and really try to understand a little bit about the description, but we can't possibly understand it. There's no way. I like to think of it this way. Uh, We live in a universe that has four dimensions that are perceived. Mathematically speaking, some suggest, some very smart people, a lot smarter than me, suggest that there are actually ten dimensions and that the other six are curled into space and only mathematically inferred. Okay, what does that mean? That means I have no clue. (laughs) That means I know how to read a Google search. Basically, interestingly enough, there were men like Nachmanides and Machmanides who suggested these things a thousand years ago. And the reason they came to those conclusions, they studied God's word. And they came to the conclusion that there were ten dimensions. 
Uh, now, with all of our knowledge and supercomputers, we have concurred with something they discovered by studying God's word. Now, that's fascinating. That's a study for another time. But I look at that and I think to myself, okay, that's our current universe. And, and, and let's say if there are ten dimensions, I can perceive four. I have no clue what the other six do or how they work. But, but, if I lived in a two-dimensional universe... I wouldn't be able to perceive more than the three. I wouldn't be able to understand. I would only, like, for example, if the, the, uh, the, the world was flat, sort of two-dimensional like a screen, then you wouldn't really be able to perceive three dimensions. So we live in four, and there's possibly ten, who knows how many more. So what, how much is there out there in our creation that we can't perceive? That's the point. A lot. That's, that's, my, that's the only point I'm trying to make this morning. So when we talk about the holy city, the New Jerusalem, we really don't know what it is, but it's described in terms for us that we can understand so that we can understand God's plan, not so that we can completely identify what it is. So the city is a place. It's prepared by God in heaven for us on a new earth. It's not the new earth, but it's something that is prepared and exists on the new earth. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it weren't true, I wouldn't have told you. Right? We know that God is preparing a place. This is the new Jerusalem. And the city was, as described here, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, what does that mean? That means that we understand what a bride looks like on her wedding day. Even back then, they were dressed up before their wedding. And so it's the idea of being prepared and adorned. And that description helps us to understand that this describes not only a place, but God's people, as well as the place that they dwell. God's word describes this place for us in terms that we can understand. It is prepared as a bride because the bride of Christ will dwell in it. We are the bride of Christ. We belong to him. Again, analogies, symbols, things that help us to understand things we can't possibly understand completely. This is far beyond our limited ability to understand, but God wants to communicate to us enough so that we can have hope and be encouraged. This eternal city is the hope that we will someday inherit as God's people. This is like a heaven within a heaven, if you will. And it's exciting to ponder and to wonder at what it might be like. But we'll get to find out if we're in Christ. Amen? Now, there are, and I mentioned this last week, I might have even mentioned it the week before, planes of existence. And what that means could be dimensions, but there are planes of existence, places that are separated in a way that you can't go from one plane to the other. That's about the, not easily or not without God's power, right? So let's think of the first one, the earth, that is our creation, this realm, the realm of man whether it's the planets or the solar systems or the galaxies or the farthest reaches of the universe, this is all the current creation, but it includes the earth. And we live here now. There is a heaven that you can't go, you know, down the street, make a left, even your GPS won't get you there. It's somewhere outside of our current plane of existence. It's called heaven. It's, It's sometimes called the third heaven because there's the sky, first heaven, space, the second heaven, and then heaven, where God's throne is and where the angels dwell. 
So that there's that plane of existence. We've talked about the place of the dead, Hades. Uh, we've talked a lot about that in our studies. That's another plane of existence. We even talked about a place called Tartarus, which is an angelic prison, a place where angels, fallen angels are imprisoned. We talked about the abyss, which is a demonic prison, a prison of demonic spirits. And we also just last week talked about Gehenna, which is the lake of fire, the ultimate destiny for all those that reject Christ. Okay, so that's six. There, there may be more, but that's six planes of existence that we learn about in the Bible. Like I said, there may be more. They, they may be dimensional. They may not be. I, I really don't know what they are, but the Bible says they exist. One I live in, the, the other, the other uh, five I believe in because God's word tells me they're there. Amen? So, John now hears a loud voice from the throne of God. And this is an announcement of this glorious new creation, which again is a new heaven, new sky, right, new earth, and a city called the New Jerusalem. And we read, and I'm going to read the rest of our section today in verses 3 through 8. We read this. And, uh, John uh, writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new, new in quality, different. You might even interpret that, new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I like that, it is done. It reminds me of Christ's words from the cross. It is finished. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to him who is thirsty. I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son or my child. But the cowardly the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those that practice magic arts or sorcery, the idolaters, and all liars, most of Washington, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. I couldn't resist. This is the second death. Okay, we've talked about the second death. Now, as I consider this description and this announcement by God. The most encouraging thing is in verse 3. God will live with his people and his people will live with him. I could stop right there. You can email me the rest of the chapter. That's enough for me today. Have you thought about what it might be like to live with God for eternity? Your mind, our minds can't even begin to imagine what that's going to be like. But I promise you, it makes any thought or description of heaven pale in comparison to the eternal truth. That's a lot to take in. It's a lot to think about. Now, do we believe that? I hope you believe that because I wouldn't want to be a Christian if it wasn't true. I wouldn't want to live my life denying my flesh and seeking God and and having a relationship with God just to find out the whole thing was bogus. Now, of course, I don't believe it is. There's some people that don't believe this, and they won't experience this. 
But for those of us who believe, do you understand that this profound truth drives every decision we make? A decision not to sin, a decision to serve God, a decision to go on a mission trip, a decision to serve in ministry, a decision to share the gospel with someone else, study the word, pray, worship. All your decisions are guided by the hope you have in Christ. And the hope we have in Christ is this. This is our eternal reward. So you better believe it. If you don't, I feel sorry for you. Paul said it. He said, if, if there is no resurrection, he said, we're, we're to be pitied more than anyone else because we're basically buying into a lie. But of course, it's not a lie. We know the truth of it. But one day God will live with us and we will live with him. God will comfort his people. And by the way, children can understand this. If you tell children the truth of the gospel, and you end with, and we will spend forever with God, they have a better ability to grasp that truth than you and I do. Why? Because it's a simple truth. And we have a problem understanding that because we try to figure it out. But kids are like, okay. See, what you know what's sad? What's sad to me is some parents, and listen, this is between you and your family and your children, will tell their children that the tooth fairy... Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny are real. And if you do that, that's up to you. I'm not not judging you for that. But if you do that, and then they grow up and inevitably find out that those things aren't true, and then you've told them all that same amount of time that God is real, you run the risk of putting God in the same category as stories, fables. I'm not against fables and stories. I love them. But there's a difference between what's true and what's false or not real. You, you can imagine. It's okay to have imagination and tell stories. With kids, they love that. But they need to understand that when it comes to God, it's not a story. It's not a Bible story. It's the biblical account of the truth. And when you tell them, listen, we, we pretend, we, we, we play games, we read stories. But this is not a story. This is what happens after you die. This is where we will be as a Christian family for all eternity with God. They need to understand this truth, and they can absorb that truth. They can, and they need to, and they need to understand that. And by the way, the gospel today needs to be preached in the same way to adults, where you're telling them the truth about that, and we'll get to in a minute the truth about what happens if you don't give your life to Christ, which we call the lake of fire. So, I make that point because now more than ever, It breaks my heart to consider the world that our children are growing up in. I thought it was tough. I mean, I grew up in the late 60s, 70s, into the 80s. And I look at my childhood, and I I, I had it made in comparison to what these children are facing today. I could could go to public school, and my, my faith as a Christian wasn't being assaulted every day. So I look at what our children are dealing with today, and our job, and we take this very seriously here at Calvary Chapel, is to make it abundantly clear that there's a choice that needs to be made and that there are consequences to that choice. Consequences to the choice of what will you do with Jesus Christ. Once our children understand that, they may stray from it. They may make terrible decisions. I made a lot of them. I'm still here because if you train up a child in the way he or she should go. They can't depart from it. 
It's ingrained in who we are. It's why I'm here today. And I didn't grow up in a contemporary, Bible-believing, born-again church. But I grew up with the truth of the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ from the word of God, and it never left me. And there came a day where I chose to give my life to Jesus Christ. That is really, if you ask, what is the mission of our church? It's a broad mission. We're looking to minister broadly to the needs of every person that walks through our doors and to bring as many into the church to know Christ as we can, if you want to call that a mission statement. But a very large part of what we do here is focused on the children and making sure they understand what I just explained to you. Parents know this, but we can only come alongside and encourage the truth that you have to teach your children each and every day. But if we're not going to do that, let's pack up and go home now. Because what that means is, 10 years from now, the children that are here will start to fall off from faith. They'll start to go into the world. And that may happen. They may make those choices. And, And parents, there's nothing you can do about that. They'll make their choices. But you've got to give them the alternative so that if they make wrong choices, they know what the right choice is. And it may take them a while. They may be prodigals, but they will find their way back according to God's Holy Spirit leading them back. But our great mission, our purpose indeed as a church, is to reach the next generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they know this hope that we're talking about today is real and not another story. I've gone a long way to make that point. But that is why we're here. The purpose to pass on to the next generation the truth of the gospel. And it's becoming more and more difficult, not only for them, but for us to do that job. But God is greater than the world, our flesh, and the devil. That's our hope. That's our mission. That's our purpose. And so this is a very important message, and I want to encourage you, maybe read this section this week with your children. This is very easy to understand. It answers a lot of questions. It's not something that, you know, the next section might get a little involved, but this section is not that hard to understand. It's very simple. It's very basic. Walk them through it. Have them ask questions. Make sure they understand that there are consequences for choosing to reject Christ and glorious reward for those that choose Christ, those that reject, of course, will not experience. So, all of that to say this, God will live with us and us with him. God will comfort his people in all their sorrows. He's going to remove death, mourning, crying, and pain. So if you've experienced any of those things in life, death, mourning, crying, and pain, and it's hard to get through this life without experiencing that, we've all gone through things, difficulties, But he's going to remove those things. Mankind will finally be restored to the paradise of Eden. You've probably wondered, what was it like to be in the Garden of Eden? Well, you're going to find out. The old order of fallen creation will have passed away. Things will be different. God, the great I am, will make everything new. Now, God's perfect state. Now, I want you to tune into this. Because God's perfect state, which is what we're talking about, the eternal state, God's perfect state is one of redemption. It's not one of innocence. What do I mean? Well, the Garden of Eden was a perfect state, but it was one of innocence. There was no sin. Mankind chose to sin and brought sin into the world. But before that, it was a place of innocence. 
Now, there is an age at which your, your children are innocent. It doesn't last very long. Have you noticed, parents? Very shortly after they begin to know what's going on around them, they prove themselves to be sinners. Or have you noticed? What is that word they learn right away? Mine? You hear that. Where do they learn that from, I wonder? So you, you see, that the, the, the thing is, it's a fallen world today, but there was once a moment where it was innocent. And man and woman were living in innocence. And things were good. But remember that God's perfect state is not one of innocence. It will be one of redemption. See, our instinct is to romantically consider innocence as man's perfect state. Wouldn't the world just be great if we were all just innocent, everything was just perfect? Well, God didn't think so. Because we obviously wish that Adam would have never done what he did, but God knew that he would. And we fail to realize that redeemed man is so much greater than innocent man. What? Yes, redeemed man is so much greater than innocent man. By the way, we gain far more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. God, in his infinite wisdom and glory, realized that a redeemed mankind would truly be the perfect state. And so innocent mankind was just the precursor to the plan of God, which included sin, death, redemption. And of course, the death of Christ brings redemption. And salvation. That's not plan B, by the way. That's plan A. That's the way God planned it all along. And that's hard to understand. But God instructed John, write these things down so we can read them. And we're reading them today. Now, I imagine John may have been so overwhelmed that he actually stopped writing. But God assured John that he could trust that these words were true. They're trustworthy and true. So why am I going to such great lengths to make that point? Because God wants you to know you can trust the word of God. You can trust his word. This is true. If you're struggling to believe it's true, ask God to show you in your heart it is the truth. The truth of God's word. And God declared to John that he had completed his eternal purpose and plan for his people at this point. It is done. The plan that was implemented when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is now finished at this point in this vision. God said it is done just as Jesus cried, it is finished from the cross. He created mankind to spend all eternity with him. That's our great purpose. He will enable his people to fulfill this eternal purpose because he who began a work will be faithful to complete it in you. Amen? He declared himself, that is, God declared himself to be the eternal creator, the Alpha and the Omega. They're the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. So the A to Z, the beginning to the end of all creation. And this is the end. This is the completion. This is what we're looking forward to. He will freely give all those that thirst. Do you thirst? Say amen. He will freely give all those that thirst Access to the spring of the water of life. These are symbols that represent something so much deeper than a glass of water or a spring of water. By the way, if you're thirsty, it's only those who are thirsty that will have access. And those who are thirsty are those that thirst for eternal life. 
I remember what Jesus said. I'm going to read it because it's a powerful truth. In John's Gospel, in chapter 4 and verse 13, when speaking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water, speaking of the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So how do I interpret the spring of water? Eternal life. And I don't have to think really hard about that because that's what Jesus told us in John's gospel. We're talking about eternal life. We're using symbols that we can understand to describe eternal life. But eternal life belongs to all those that thirst for it. Oh, Pastor Tim, it doesn't seem fair that not everyone will be in heaven. I don't know if I can serve a God who's going to send anyone to hell. Well, God doesn't send anyone to hell. They choose to go there. If you're not thirsty for the things of God, God is not going to force you to drink them. God is not going to force you to experience eternal life if you reject eternal life. You will get what you want in this life and in the next, and what you want really should be to spend eternity with him. But if you have allowed your heart to become wicked, if you are as the next section here describes, then you won't experience eternal life. But it will be your choice. Oh, Pastor Tim, how can you say that? You're so narrow-minded. There have to be many ways to God. Well, it was Jesus that said, there's no way to the Father but by me. So your problem isn't with me. Your problem is with God and his word if you defy the truth of the gospel as presented today. We'll honor your choice. God will honor your choice. You get to choose. Yes, man has freedom to choose. He also has to face the consequences of his choices. And this choice especially. So those who are thirsty are those that thirst for eternal life. And Jesus is the spring of the water of life. That's what he told the Samaritan woman. So when we're talking about God saying, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life, that's, that's access to Jesus and salvation in Jesus for all eternity. So that's a good thing. Amen? But then God declared to John that he who overcomes will inherit eternal life. He says, he who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, my child. He will be God and father to all those who overcome by believing in Jesus. I think about John's gospel in chapter 1. To as many as received them, to, to those that believed on his name, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. That is a right that you have if you're in Christ. And only if you're in Christ. Jesus is the great I am, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Jesus said those words himself. Eternal life can only be found in Jesus Christ. Have I made that clear? I hope I have. That's the gospel. But then God declared something else. You see, there's the good news, and that's the good news. Here's the bad news. Not for us, but for those who reject the gospel. God declared to John that the wicked will be cast into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. We called it Gehenna. It's referred to as, in a number of ways, fire is at the center of it. It is certainly not the place you want to spend eternity, as we talked about last week. This is a place where the cowardly dwell for all eternity. What are the cowardly? I'm going to go through the words that are described here and give you a broader understanding of them. The cowardly are those that are timid and fearful. And therefore, have no faith in God. They're cowardly. They don't put their trust in God. 
And I'm not talking about you having a moment of, of, of a challenge in your faith. Someone who's too fearful to even put their faith in God. Also the unbelieving. And by the way, this would be true of just about anyone in the lake of fire. The unbelieving are the unfaithful, those that refuse to trust God. Now this is an interesting word, the vile. The vile. I looked up this word and I was surprised. And I didn't know this until very recently. I'd never seen this description in any of my notes before. The vile are those that stink. The word can be used to describe a stench that's on someone. A stink. Basically, B.O. The vile are those that stink, but it's used as a symbol or as an analogy. They're detested. No one wants to be around someone that reeks. But it's, they're detested because of the stench of their lifestyle, their behavior. So it's not so much that they actually smell. It's that their behavior is like a stench. Now, if you're like me, you have seen some things happening in our world recently that can be described as vile. Would you agree? I'm going to resist the temptation to describe them to you because I don't want that stench in this holy sanctuary. But you know what I'm talking about. You're watching a movie. We were watching a movie last night on Netflix, and that's not an advertisement for Netflix either. But it's just, you know, we're watching it, and we got into it, and sure enough, there was some vile situation. Click, we turned that one off. Because so much of the stuff that we're being exposed to in our culture today is vile. And it's the perfect word. You see some of these protests, you see some of these people, these people promoting ungodliness and wickedness, and it, it, it reeks. It's vile. It's a stench in our world. And you don't want to be around it. Very good word to describe a very horrible thing. Then there are murderers. Of course, murderers intentionally take a life. The sexually immoral. Those are those individuals that sell their bodies or indulge in inappropriate sexual relations, which, by the way, includes all sexual perversion. I'm not even going to go into the descriptions because, again, my mind right now is in a good place. I don't want to bring that vile stench into my mind. But it is true. There's a lot of sexual immorality in our world being celebrated even this month. And here's the truth. This is the ultimate destination for a person who embraces that lifestyle. And this is why we're so serious about telling the truth about it. No, it's not hate, it's love, because we don't want them to end up here. But the truth is, they will, unless they repent. Then we have those that practice the magic arts. Now, interestingly enough, and this is true in most ancient cultures... There is no such thing as magic. You know that, right? Maybe you've been to Harry Potter world, but you do know this. There is no such thing as magic, right? Okay, there's illusion, but magic doesn't really exist. Well, what ancient cultures used to do is they used to take hallucinogenics and drugs in order to create a world they wished existed. If I want to levitate, well, then I just take some mushrooms or some LSD, or something like that. And now, oh, I believe that what I would like to believe is true is actually true. 
So the word is pharmakos. It's from where we get the word pharmacy or, or pharmaceuticals or big pharma. We get those words from this word. So practicing sorcery and magic arts is drug use. They're, they're the same thing. I mean, using drugs for whatever purpose or sorcery, it's the same word. Now, do you think we have a problem today with people trying to create their own reality through pharmaceuticals, prescribed or otherwise? I'm not even going to answer that question because it's a rhetorical question. Of course we do, right? So listen, listen. That pretty much describes, at, that, at this point, our entire culture today. But it goes on, idolaters, those are those individuals who worship false gods and love money. For Paul told us that greed is idolatry, Right? And finally, we have liars. They're deceitful and false, those that bear false witness. And there is no shortage of those that can be described as liars in our world and in our culture today. And it's the second death or eternal hell that awaits the wicked, where they will be tormented day and night for all eternity in the presence of God and his holy angels. What a hateful message, you might say. Oh, Pastor Tim, that's... Why? Why would you say something so awful and so unappealing? Because it's true for those that reject Christ. It's not a matter of me judging anyone or you judging anyone. It's a matter of the gospel being true. So what are you going to do about it? I mean, all the wicked receive their new resurrected bodies, but they're not going to abide in God's love. They're sent to hell to abide in God's wrath for all eternity. Listen, listen, that's the truth of the gospel message. And our children need to understand everything that is contained here. Maybe you don't have to go into the graphic descriptions of verse 8 and what each sin means. But most children need to be told, because they're being exposed in our culture today to those sins and they're being promoted, and they're being put up as as alternative lifestyles or even celebrated lifestyles, we better get real, parents, in telling them the truth about these things or someone else is going to tell them, and it's not going to be explained in a way that's true. They're going to be lied to, and they're going to be told that there really is no sexual immorality or vile, wicked behavior, and that God loves everybody no matter how they behave. Well, God does love you, all people. That much is true, but he hates sin. And so as I ask Pastor Russ to come up, I want you to understand something. This is, this is the, the point. This is the, the why we're here. This message is the purpose of the church. This is our hope, and it needs to be promoted. It needs to be communicated. We need to share this message with as many people as we can in as many ways as God gives us the creativity to do. Because this is why we're not in heaven right now. We have a purpose. And granted, our children come first, but it doesn't end there. There are missions trips. There are outreaches. Inspire Sports Camps outreaches is happening just in a few weeks that Pastor Kurt shared about last week. Pastor Joe is taking a trip this summer to El Salvador, and several of you are going on that trip. There are so many opportunities at your job, at your school, at your gym, wherever you are. And when you're around people that have not made this decision, you have an opportunity 
to show them the truth and to answer the questions they may have. Believe me, if they see how you live, they will ask questions. And you'll be given the opportunity to provide an answer for all that ask. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you. We understand and we know the consequences of a rejection of Jesus Christ are severe, eternal, awful. And we truly desire not only just to avoid the consequences of hell and hell itself uh, for ourselves and for our family, but for all those we know, those that we love, we just very quietly in our hearts right now think of the faces of the individuals that we have in our lives that haven't made that decision as of yet. And we cannot affect their decision. The Holy Spirit can reach out to them, but they still have to make that choice. May we influence by the power of the Spirit, but may you reach into the hearts of each and every individual that knows this truth and give them the ability and the strength and the courage that they wouldn't be cowardly, the courage to make that choice for you. To know the truth that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, that he rose again on the third day, and that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, and he will establish eternity for those that love him. Oh Lord, help us to preach this truth with our lives and our words, we pray in Jesus' name.